Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. John Braddock is a former CIA spy and was responsible for recruiting and handling sources dealing with the spread of nuclear weapons, counterterrorism, and political military issues. You're going to hear his top tips for being a spy, about his involvement in tracking down Osama bin Laden, whether he thinks Trump was compromised by Russia, and what really happened to Jeffrey Epstein. Everything he talks about on this podcast had to be declassified and approved by the CIA, and he can't reveal his face or identity. I hope you enjoy the episode. Joining me today is former CIA spy and best-selling author John Braddock. Thanks for joining me, mate. Hey, great to be here. Well, give me an update. Like, where, where are you? What, what are you doing with yourself now? What does a spy do when they're not spying? That's that's a great question. So I'll give you a little bit of background on me, and it'll tell you where my path went. So I started off as a university researcher working on primarily economic issues, but others as well before I joined the CIA. So so after after leaving the spy world, I went I went to the corporate world, and uh, did many different things. Whatever the decision makers needed, really at one large fortune 500 company you've probably heard of i uh they tried to build their own competitive intelligence organization many times and, and so they asked me to come in and we finally did it so they now you know are gathering you know ethical information publicly available information on their competitors but they they now know how to process that so it fits into the decision making of the executives wow so and, and you are using your skills from being a case officer or a spy to help them with the gathering of their intelligence or just the processing of their intelligence? It's, it's you know, it's both. But so the, the process we use in, in my consulting, but then I also write about in a spy's guide to thinking is, is an updated version of the OODA loop, which a lot of military folks have heard of, but um, it was, it's an acronym built by a guy named Colonel John Boyd in the 1950s to describe the thinking process that a fighter pilot goes through in a dogfight. And, and OODA stands for observe, orient, decide, and act. And whoever goes through that process most quickly in a dogfight, he said, is most likely to win. So it actually is the reason why the U.S. Air Force developed more maneuverable aircraft, F-15, F-16, et cetera. So this process that we talk about in the book and that I use in corporate consulting updates it. So instead of observe, we say, okay, data collection is really what that is. Instead of orient, we say, okay, that's really analysis. And then you fit that data collection and analysis into the decision-making and then, of course, the most important part is action at the end that you can actually execute. You can actually do things in the real world and get results. 
so that that process there is is what we what we implement when we when we talk to companies and quite frankly individuals as well you use that process you mentioned in europe in a situation didn't you can you talk me through that what happened and how you used it yeah so a lot of things that i did in the spy world are still classified but I was able to get this one, and, and that's another motivation for me writing these books is I can get these stories declassified. It sometimes takes a little while to go through the CIA's process, but everything I write has to has to be approved before it's published. So, so I managed to get these three books through that process, which isn't easy and sometimes can take years. But the um, so the story I tell in the in the thinking book of a situation in Europe is me looping through this DA DA process many times as I was I was confronted and accosted by somebody I wasn't expecting I was on my way to a safe house to meet a source and um, I was checking for last minute communications when this guy comes up to me he says in the local language let me see your phone and so I went through this DA, DA process, asking questions, collecting data on him, figuring out what he wants, figuring out what my options were, and getting through that process as quickly as I can. I won't, uh, I won't tell the whole story because that's what <laughs> it's all in the book. But the, uh, you know, I ended up with a scar from this encounter, but I also kept everything I had, so I didn't lose. Which, when you're a spy. That's the most important thing is you don't lose. You're out there collecting intelligence. You're taking lots of risks. And your first goal every day, don't lose. Because losing is very, very serious. Yeah. Have you ever been in a situation where you've lost? So, so I got in the scar. Uh, so it's, you know, it's a little bit. So you want to lose on the safer margins of like, you know, it's okay if you get beat up. It's okay if you get a scar. You don't want to lose the intelligence. You don't want to lose the communications device you have with you. You don't want to lose the bigger battles, the bigger war. It's okay if you lose, you miss a meeting. It's okay if, you know, you have a confrontation with a source. So yes, I've lost. I've lost tiny battles, but I haven't lost any wars. What's the biggest loss you've had? It's hard to answer because every every loss is is in context, right? So you again, you're, you're thinking about the loss of a battle versus the loss of a war, and and you accept the the tiny losses where, you know, for instance, somebody just somebody just you thought was going to bring you great intelligence doesn't. So it's so a one situation I was. I sat in the Mediterranean for a week waiting for a guy who didn't show up. So is that a loss? Yeah, it's a loss of a week of my life, <laughs> although it could be worse places. But the, uh, you know, did I lose, you know, did I lose a war? Did I lose the intelligence? Yes. Did, you know, anybody die because of it? No. So let's go right back to the start because originally you were, you mentioned you you were an academic, weren't you? Like how did, how does that, how do you go from there to being in the CIA? Well, you, if, if you're somebody like me, you think, okay, you know, right out of university, all these professors, all of these higher ups who've 
worked in government, they've, they've written books, they've done all this work, surely they have all the answers. And so you go work for them for a while and you realize, you know what, the real world isn't necessarily what I'm seeing reflected in the models they're building, the math they're doing, even though the policy choices they're making. So I decided, you know what, I was actually in a PhD program and I decided, you know what, I'm going to try to do something more you know, where I can get more experience in the world. And so what was your PhD program? Like what, what, what were you studying? That was in uh, that was in politics right. and government. OK, I thought, you know, what, I maybe I'll become a diplomat. So I took the U.S. Foreign Service exam, passed it. And then a friend said, you know, you can do that. You'd probably be OK at it. But I think you'd be better at this other job. And they introduced me to somebody who turned out to be the head of recruitment for the CIA. And your friend uh, introduced you to the head of recruitment and CIA. Right. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Which, you know, I had no idea. I had no idea of that connection. When did you find out that they were the head of recruitment for CIA? Uh, it was after meeting, and it was a woman, after meeting that woman. Really? So what was at the meeting go? Well, <laughs> actually, so the meeting was with me and my wife. And, uh, you know, I described my background, academia, no real world experience in them. And then she turns to my wife and my wife says, oh, yeah, I speak two languages. I've lived in four different countries. And like the focus of the room shifted completely towards my wife. <laughs> and she was much more interested in talking to my wife and talking to me. And I had to kind of say, hey, I'm over here. I'm interested. And uh, and we actually. She set us up with the meeting, informational meeting with the head of the CIA. And, and um, you know, then my wife decided she wasn't interested. And so I think, you know, they kind of took me as a secondary choice, I think. <laughs> and when you, um, so when you started out, like, what, what's the training? Like, what are you, because you see in movies how you get these like training on not being, getting, not getting followed and stuff like that. Like, what, what's the training like? What do they get you to do? There is all of that. There is surveillance detection. There's, you know, how to do a dead drop. There's those kinds of What's things. What's a dead but, drop? So a dead drop is when you drop a concealed package somewhere for somebody else to pick up at a later time. And we we're going through the, I was going through the training and, and it, it took me a while, but then it finally dawned on me because the training was okay. I mean, you had to you had to know how to do the basics of espionage, but it's not actually that complicated because we keep it very simple. And a lot of the things we do or did are what they did, you know, 30, 40 years before. A lot of the things you you know you saw in the original espionage movies of the 1960s are still still done today. Really? But what I realized after a while was we and you do a lot of role play. You work with a lot of older spies who are playing different parts and, you know, they, they like to amp up the drama and, and do crazy things to you to see how you react. And it took a while for me to realize that the real purpose of all the training exercises was just to figure out if you can react on your feet, if you can, if you can make good decisions under pressure. How do you work out if someone is following you, and then how do you how do you how do you how do you ditch your tail? Like how do you get rid of them? How do you get, how do you how do you evade them? Well, you know, actually, so that's something from the movies. That's that's a myth. You don't actually want to lose them, right? You, 
you don't want to lose the the people who are surveilling you because if you do something where all right so so here's the typical situation you're in a foreign country in alias and i can talk about this because it's these this is actually covered in my third book spies guide and taking risks i i go through an entire day of detecting surveillance so what you what you're doing and what i did in that book was I was an alias in a foreign country. It was actually the first day I was an alias in a foreign country is a story I tell there. And what you're doing is you're trying to see if someone's following you before you go to meet with the source because the, the worst thing that could happen is a security service or an enemy finds you with that source because then you know there's no cover story that'll save you. There's nothing right. that'll help you. And, and, and a source a source is the, the person that is working for you in the other country, like essentially against the other country in some some cases, so, so they're the ones giving you the information. Exactly, yeah, source of information. Exactly, source of intelligence. So you don't want your the people that are surveilling you to ever know who your source is. That's how you get people killed. That's how you that's how you get the big loss you were talking about earlier. Right. That's that's the worst thing possible. So we spent a lot of time, a lot of time, a lot of effort, millions of dollars, billions of dollars, really making sure that that never happens, that we never, we never lose a source that way. Um, and surveillance detection is part of it. So when you're out, you're going through choke points, you're making it so that a surveillance team can't possibly follow you without you spotting them. And if you're not sure, if you're not 100%, you don't go to the meeting. So the, the framework we use in Spy's Guide to Taking Risks lays that out and says, okay, 90% sure that you know, there was nobody on that train with me. But I still want to combine that with another taxi ride. Okay, 95% chance nobody followed me there. I still want to keep going until I get to a choke point where Hundred percent chance nobody followed me through that without me spotting them. What would a good choke point look like? So a good choke point is um, like uh, in Europe. Some of the airports have roads that go underneath the runways. You really can't follow somebody on that road unless you go around. You know, you have to follow directly behind them on that road. If because the airport and the runways are so extensive and it's also protected airspace, so nobody can follow you with a drone over that over that airport. So that's a great choke point. You don't you don't try to lose them. First of all, if you try to lose them, you've exposed yourself. They know that something's up with you. And that's the reason why they're surveilling you most of the time is because they're not sure. This guy could be what he says he is. He's just a businessman or you know, any of the other covers we use, or he's a spy. So we're going to put some surveillance on this guy and find out what he really is. And then is it, is it, so it's worth your while keeping them surveilling you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, ideally you identify them. You just go about your daily, daily routine. You, you go to your office, you do what you're going to do anyway, but you say, you know, when you get back to your office, you, you report it and say, oh, I was surveilled today. How far do you go? Because uh, I'm, I'm assuming when you're getting surveilled, you're, you're getting, um, you're, you're under an alias, right? How, how far do you go with that alias? Have you got like a full second life? Is that how intricate is that that spy's 
cover. It's as intricate as it needs to be. So it really depends on the mission and it depends on, you know, a lot of different factors. There are resource constraints, just like everything else in the world. Mm. So you have to make sure that, you know, it's worthwhile, but this is, you know, there's a lot of money spent, a lot of resources put into making sure, because again, these people are putting their lives in your hands. You're doing everything to protect them. So how intricate have you had? Like, have you ever had, you know, like a, a full-time, a full-time second job, house, girlfriend, anything like that? Like what's the most sort of real second life that you've had? Yeah, no, I mean, no, not a girlfriend. Uh, that, yeah, my wife wouldn't be happy with that. What a spy does really fits the circumstances. Personally, I was able to do things that, you know, looking back on are, are still incredible and they're, they're, a lot of risks were taken, but, you know, I didn't have to, you know, I didn't have to push myself into those situations. Um, at that time, in the way things were, I was able to get everything done, you know, in a relatively light way, but, you know, I did have a lot of names. I had a lot. In did fact, you get to come up with your own name or did you get given it? <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a process and I'm not sure I can describe it because I haven't had that approved, but there's, there's back and forth on what your names are. Right. I see. What's the longest you've ever been under, like stayed in that alias for it? Like, so, you know, you're going to a mission as James Bond for argument's sake. Um, and, and how long do you? How long's the longest you've stayed under that alias? Well, first of all, I'm I'm not sure that I can answer that in an unclassified way. So it's not like you have one name at one time. I'll say that. How about that? As far as like when you are, you know, let's say you you've spent some time as as the alias. How do you slip in and out backwards and forwards? So real life to to alias to alias to real life. What's the process in between look like? So that's, that is actually the most dangerous moment when you're a spy is when you transfer from one identity to another, because if you've been surveilled under one name and then you switch into another name and the surveillance is still on you, then you, you know, you, you just don't have, you don't have any way to talk yourself out of it. Every cover can be exposed eventually if enough mm. resources are pointed at you. The purpose of all this is really to give you a way to talk yourself out of it. That's that's really all it is, is to create doubt in the minds of the people who are trying to find you, trying to discover what you're doing. Is um, That's the purpose of this, of all this work you do under Alias, is to create that doubt in their minds so that you can create a cover story that's actually boring enough where they say, okay, this guy just isn't very interesting. What does that what does that swap look like? Do you go into a house as your alias and then you meet someone and you go out a secret tunnel or like what how does that how does that little dangerous bit happen? Yeah, that I mean that part's not dangerous. Um I can't get into, you know, exactly cuz that, that is a that is a technique, but the the dangerous part is that somebody sees you go in one way and it comes out, you come out another way and they connect the dots that hang on. This guy was just that. And now he's this, those things don't work. And again, you know, 
the only people who do this kind of thing are criminals and spies. You'd rather them think you're a criminal, but they, they know something's up. And as soon as they know something's up, then they focus all your, all their resources on you. And, and then it's also, again, harder to talk your way out of it. What about gadgets? Because you're not a massive fan of gadgets, but you must have still used some pretty cool toys. Yeah, you you do, um, but you try not to because you want gadgets that are proven, that have stood the test of time, and are reliable. Because again, you know, you're putting your life and somebody else's, maybe dozens, maybe hundreds of people's lives on the line every time you go out and do something and you know you're using the latest iphone or galaxy or whatever and all of a sudden it decides it needs a software update and reboots right in the middle of an operation you just you just can't do that you can't rely on you know even at 99 percent effectiveness so number one you try not to use gadgets as much as possible you try to use things that that you can trust to 100%. Because you're going to do this, you're going to go out on missions a thousand times maybe in your career. And if you've got things that only work at 99% effectiveness, those mm. bad odds, those are really bad odds. Even at 99%, that means 1% of the time, over a thousand times, you're going to fail. So that's 10 failures and you don't want one failure. Wow. Yeah. When you look at it, when you look at those numbers like that, it makes sense. I get it. What about when you're bugging someone? Like, have you bugged, have you bugged someone before? Like, you know, put a, well, you know what bugging is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know what bugging is. My job actually was to stay away from bugs because I was the guy that they would try to bug. In fact, it's still a lot for me to have a microphone on my face. Like I do. Really? Right now. Because I, yeah, I was the target. That's interesting because if you're listening to this on the podcast, what you'll notice um, or what you won't notice is that we're doing this over a Zoom call and John has um, not got his camera on and he's got a picture of his book, which is a great book, um, A Spy's Guide to Thinking and Strategy. Um, But we were speaking off air beforehand about how you're still, even though you're not uh, a case officer anymore, you're not in the field, there's still some loose ends, isn't there? Yeah, there are. And, you know, again, I like to work at 100% success rates rather than 99% success rates. And this is how you do it. Do you think, do you think people could be even listening to this conversation? Uh, I mean, it's certainly in the realm of possibility, but... You know, and that's why I have to be careful right. what I say. And, you know, and the institution of the CIA makes me get everything approved before it's written down, which, you know, was actually something I had to think about very hard before I signed all those many years ago because it's a lifetime commitment. Yeah. I think in the UK they have the, the Secrets Act, which is similar. They, um, you know, this is a, this is an agreement that you sign when you when you take this job at the agency and they uh you know they're happy to litigate it 
if we just go back to the the bugging bit, if you were going to bug someone's house, would you actually be the person that would have to go into someone's house and and, and plant things? Is that like you, you see in the movies? They'll go in in the middle of the night with their um, screwdrivers and whatnot and um, chewing gum and plant the plant the plant the bugs under underneath the desks and things and behind the light lampshades and and that kind of stuff. Were you did you ever get involved in any of that kind of stuff? The interesting thing about what movies do is they have the same people do the jobs that are in real life distributed among many people, right? My job was to go out and meet, recruit, handle spies and sources. Other people's jobs are to do, you know, what you're talking about. Um, but my job, again, data collection from, from people, and we call it, you know, human intelligence or human for short. Um, there are other people who do, you know, what they call signals intelligence, um, gathering electronic information, et cetera. So in the real world, that's what you do. You focus on what you do best and you get, you get very good at it. And of course you had to be in my world, you know, world-class in order to survive and, and make sure other people were safe. Mm. Speaking of making people safe, one of the biggest sort of CIA-led investigations would have been, I'm assuming, uh, hunting Osama bin Laden. Am I right? Yes, uh, absolutely. In fact, so I I was part of the last training class to graduate before 9-11, and uh, my original assignment was to be more of a deep cover kind of assignment, and um after 9-11, everything just shifted. And, and literally, you know, we weren't thinking anymore about what was going to happen in two, three, four, five years, which is what my original assignment was focused on. Uh, we were thinking about how to stop the next terrorist attack. So I shifted, like a lot of people did, and went, uh, went towards counterterrorism and also counterproliferation because those were the, you know, weapons proliferation, nuclear, et cetera, because that was the, that was the big threat of the day. And if you don't get past those threats, you know, you don't have, you don't have a country in three, four five years. And you mean by that, you mean you were um, not just counterterrorism, but also trying to f- make sure that people like Osama bin Laden didn't get hold of a nuclear weapon. Um, so they couldn't use that because that's obviously what he would have part of his end game, wasn't it? part of the process to get to his end game exactly yeah were you on the ground or like how how deep did you get into how close did you get to osama bin laden my focus was on you know collecting information on what he and his networks would do and there were a variety of ways we could do that so when you say close you know, are you thinking in, in sort of a network way where, you know, are you talking to this guy who's talking to that guy who's, you know, two degrees of separation? Are you talking physical? Um, Network-wise, we were, we were all focused on getting as close as possible. And the funny thing about mapping those networks is you're not always quite sure how close you are until many years later. You know, like the, the story that's been told and declassified in a couple of movies now is is how the um, the courier that went to bin Laden's 
uh, hideout in Pakistan was the key to finding out where exactly he was. But nobody knew that when the courier was first identified. So it was a, it's a huge, obviously massive team effort to figure out who was even a possible connection and what kind of connection they were. And then, you know, identify them and, and follow the trail back to bin Laden. So how did you work out that the courier was the, was the guy that you needed to follow back to bin Laden? You know, so this gets actually back to the structure of the DADA process. So you're, what you do in that process, just like you do in the scientific method, is you come up with the hypothesis and you say, okay, we think that this guy might be a significant guy. All right, now let's go collect data on him and all his associates and try to figure out if we're right or not. So you start off actually with the second D, you get, you know, the processes data flows into analysis, which flows into decision-making, which flows into action. The huge cloud of data, they gotta, they gotta whittle all that down into a stream that feeds into the decision-makers. So the decision-makers can say, yes, this courier is connected to bin Laden. Yes, let's trail him. Yes, okay, we've now identified bin Laden. Yes, let's now send in the seals and take them out. How do you test? So let's say you've got a source. How do you test that that person isn't like a double agent? Or how, how do you find out whether or not that person is um, working, you know, giving you the right information on Bin Laden or, um, or whether or not he's feeding you stuff to send, send you off the trail or just making stuff up because they want to be part of the CIA? Oh, it's a big problem. Absolutely. You deal with this all the time where you have double agents, but even more often than double agents are people who've seen too many spy movies and they want to be part of the part of a big deal. So um, the biggest thing you can do for for a double agent or somebody who's you know just a fabricator and just making things up is is give them lots of opportunities to lie so <laughs> right. it sounds very simple but that's what you do you know you know a fact is true and you know you know that this person knows that that fact is true and you just ask them the question i mean i've literally been in meetings with somebody where i've asked them a question that i knew the answer to and and they lie and <laughs> And I say, you know, and I actually, I, I give him a second chance. Usually I say, are you sure? I, I honestly, so I have little kids. feels like I'm talking to a little kid sometimes when they, you know, you say, did you brush your teeth already? Mm. And they're like, yes. And they're, you know, pausing, looking sideways, trying not to make eye contact. <laughs> and, and you're like, did you really brush your teeth? You know? Or you say, you know, to the source, did, you know, did that really get, that guy really say he was going to, you know, set a bomb at this point and on that spot. And he's like, yes. And, you know, you give him a chance and then, but the, here's the other thing about the, the spy world is you can't let him know that you knew that he lied. Mm. So, you know, after that happens, you just kind of, you just got to calmly let him go over time 
you can't you can't be like, all right, you lied, you're out. Like you can do to your kid, you can say, you know, obviously you're lying. Go brush your teeth. And uh, you have to because you don't want them to know you have other sources of information that allows you to have the truth. Because mm. you were in a situation that you talk about in your book where there was a guy telling people that he was working with you, right? Yeah. So, so this is one of those guys who had promise. He wasn't a fabricator. He really just wanted to help. And, but then he eventually realized that, um, you know, he was going to have to do some things that he wasn't comfortable with, or he couldn't possibly perform. Um, so, so that, that was part of the root cause, but the bigger problem was I hadn't taken the time to figure out exactly why he wanted to work with us. So, so there was a lie involved in that particular story you're talking about because I, you know, had explicitly directed him not to tell anybody about our relationship. And he told me that, um, in fact, you know, he kept it secret when he hadn't. When you, when you find one of these sources, so let's say you're, you've been told you're going into a country. Um, where do you start? Like what, like you go into a country, you've got to do this. Like, how do you, how do you start gathering intelligence? Like who do you speak to? Or how do you identify someone that you should speak to? Like, where did you find this guy? Like, how do you, how do you do that? Like, what's the, what's the process? Are you get, are you given, a name from someone or do you actually have to I'm, I'm assuming part of it uh you because you're you're the you're the guys who's on the street and you're the guy that knows the guys um you have to find the people don't you how do you do that you're never starting from scratch there's always a lot of work that goes in in fact you know we used to say for every hour you spend on the street you're going to spend 12 hours doing prep work doing right analysis doing everything you need to do in order to be successful when you actually go on the street so as far as as far as finding the right targets you know absolutely you rely on analysts you rely on on a large team because you know there's there's a lot at stake and so as far as as far as the targeting goes i'll just say that there is a lot of work that goes into that yeah a bit and you and I and everybody else in this world are so connected right now. You know, you, you do learn a lot about people just by spending 10 minutes on the internet. And, you, you know, you can figure out a lot. If you can figure out a lot that way, imagine what intelligence organizations can figure out. Yeah, it's mind-blowing. For, for my stoner friends out there that um, have their conspiracy theories, like how much is the CIA kind of watching your browser history or listening into your your phones or doing doing that kind of intelligence on on everyday people so that that's one of those things i think comes out of movies is people just don't know what the cia does um there are people the other part of this is there's such a massive amount of information out there that it's really hard for for anybody to analyze it so that's why you have to focus on questions you have to focus on decision makers when you're going through that process and you have to you have to have very good questions where you say okay all right so what is this person like why would you even want to look at somebody's browser history 
what like what are you even looking for <laughs> mm. like we all have our own browser histories and so we know it's there but somebody from the outside is is gonna have to ask a question they're gonna have to be like okay this guy gone to any porn sites so is this guy <laughs> you know interested in in rugby i you know you have to ask those questions to even put in a search term right on this on this uh uh to find out the answer and all that data because it's enormous, enormous amounts of data. Like people are like, you know, well, what if they're recording us all the time? What if the, and I, mean, I feel sorry for the people who have to sit there and watch all these recordings of us just walking <laughs> down the street, you know? Yeah. I mean, maybe they can do that in China where they have enormous amounts of people just sitting there, but you know, you, <laughs> you certainly can't do it in America because those government employees cost a lot of money do you cross-reference uh, information with some of the other organizations like the dea and the fbi and stuff like that because and a lot of movies um i don't know especially in the narcos series uh, there is conflict between the the separate organizations is that the case in real world like do you liaise with those guys or are those guys just a pain in the ass yeah no you you work as much as you can but there is there's conflict, in particular the FBI, because they, um, one of my colleagues once said, the only time the FBI is quiet is when you ask them what they don't do, because they like to think they do everything, <laughs> including what including what the agency does. There's, yeah, there's definitely some turf wars there, which, you know, they tried to get, um, try to get fixed after 9-11 so that there was more intelligence sharing. Actually, my boss at the time told me before we went into a meeting with the FBI, he said, uh, just remember, we're the only people cooler than the FBI. So, so there's definitely that you guys, uh, you guys are the top dogs and then the, then the FBI underneath that, isn't it? Well, that's, I mean, that's, so you're talking to an agency CIA, guy. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But that's, you know, that's, sort of the perspective but it actually I, I so I have tons of respect for what the FBI does and and you know the law enforcement aspect of it and I've got friends on their SWAT teams that put their lives at risk just to deliver a warrant sometimes in fact two FBI agents were just killed doing exactly that so I have huge huge amount of respect for what they do the nice thing about the agency is we can you know you can go overseas and it's it's a different legal framework, but it's also a different moral framework. Like you know, people will people will say, "Okay, you're you know, you're fighting for America, so we're going to give you a little more leeway." But then you know, the FBI comes in and tries to do things to Americans, and you're like, "Hang on a second, this is this is not what the government should be doing to its own people." Right, and do you think there's still a problem with the FBI doing that? Yeah. Um... So my friends who are still there, or, you know, even high level people at the Bureau, they, they, they see the politicization and they see the, you know, the problems that have arisen from that. And, you know, the 2016 election debacle with Comey going back and forth on whether to, you know, investigate one of the candidates or not. And then, other investigations that were happening behind the scenes you, you just don't want a law enforcement organization doing that kind of stuff mm. because they 
they just carry too much weight and we give them weight in order to prosecute criminals when they try to get involved in politics. It's, it's not a good recipe for, for freedom. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Uh, looking at um, another big high-profile person that, the CIA was involved in um, with Saddam Hussein. We know he didn't have weapons of mass destruction, but he never said that he didn't have weapons of mass destruction, did he? What? What do you? What? Why, why didn't he let? Um, well, with Saddam Hussein, why didn't he let inspectors in to check and find the weapons of mass destruction? That's something that is really helpful to analyze with the strategic framework of positive sum and, and zero sum games. And whenever you do that, you look at, all right, who are this guy's primary enemies? When you look at these things, the tendency is to think that you're always the other side's primary enemy and you're not. In fact, their neighbor, whoever their neighbor is, is much more likely to be their primary enemy than, than you. And that's one of the benefits of being American is we don't have a lot, of, we don't have any real border enemies. And probably one of the advantages of being a Kiwi too mm. is you don't, <laughs> you don't really have anybody who's really threatening your border. Now you get into Europe, especially Eastern Europe, it's a completely different story. You know, you get into those areas where the bad blood goes back a thousand years or the Middle East, you know, like, like Iraq with under Saddam Hussein, what he wasn't even his first three steps of his strategy didn't even involve the U S his first focus was on domestic competition because, you know, he came to power in a, in a very bloody coup. So that was his first concern was always protecting himself against internal opposition Number one. Number two was Iran. Iran was, you know, they'd gone to war in the 80s and, and also had a very bloody conflict there. And so his focus was there. And then I would say third would be, you know, the other Middle East countries who were sometimes ganging up against him, especially Saudi Arabia. So the U.S. wasn't even in the top three enemies and the U.K. wasn't in the top three enemies for Saddam Hussein. When you realize that, you look at a strategy and you say, okay, what this guy is doing with, with weapons of mass destruction, he has to be very careful. Because if he gives, if he actually gets a nuclear weapon, he's not going to have it under his bed. 
he's going to have it in some silo somewhere where some general is going to be in control of it. And guess who just became the most powerful person in Iraq as soon as that happens? That general mm. who controls that nuclear weapon that he just got. So what actually happened in the Saddam Hussein situation was he created this fiction that he had weapons of mass destruction and that you know one colonel in this part of Iraq thought this other colonel, this other general had weapons of mass destruction. So the, the communications that Secretary Powell talked about at the UN were actually real. They actually believed that, oh, this other guy has weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, but I don't have it. And so <laughs> there was this confusion within Iraq about who had it. And so when you're reading the intelligence, you're like, oh, okay, that guy has it. But then that guy thinks the other guy has it. So there's all this, anyway, all this back and forth. And then he also created this, this illusion that somebody in Iraq had weapons of mass destruction to keep the Iranians from invading, because that's the best strategy for that. You don't want the Iranians invade, oh, you're, we're going to drop a nuclear bomb on you if that happens. So he created this fiction of weapons of mass destruction. And a lot of people don't like to hear this analysis. They like to think, oh, no, you know, somebody lied. Somebody just got this wrong on purpose. But my read of the situation is that he created this fiction. And <laughs> here's the worst part. Saddam Hussein actually thought the U.S. intelligence agencies knew the truth. He actually thought that our spies were powerful enough that we knew that he was he had created this fiction and uh but what had happened was he had gone through and purged the upper echelons of iraq so many times that he had killed everybody who had ever been a spy for western intelligence so all that was left were people and they also restricted travel so it was really hard to to communicate with anybody so he had he had sown the seeds of his own destruction by creating this myth of weapons of mass destruction and then killing all the people who could tell us the truth. Oh, my goodness. Why did the Americans care about him having the WMDs? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great question. And um, I don't know. If we, didn't have, if we didn't have George W. Bush as president at that time, I'm not sure we would have to the same extent, but there were, you know, he obviously had been in the White House when his father, George Bush Sr. had been president. And, you know, the first, the first war with Iraq over Kuwait. And so that history definitely played. And of course, Dick Cheney and, you know, all that history played into that decision. What are your thoughts there's a recent story came out from a, um, some former KGB spies that Donald Trump was a Russian asset for over 40 years. Basically, the KGB groomed him to be president. What are your thoughts? What are you? Th what are your thoughts on it as a as a as a theory? So I'm a I'm biased in the sense that. I myself and my sources have penetrated so many governments. It's really hard to keep secrets. I really think it's really, really hard to keep secrets like that. And, you know, if something like that had happened, I believe we would, we would know it. And Trump has enough enemies. 
that would have been published somewhere or publicized somewhere. I don't think there would have been any kind of, you know, restrictions on that information going out because, I mean, we just saw Trump had a lot of support in the, you know, sort of uh, rural areas of the U.S. and um, not a lot of support in the actual government of the U.S. And so if anybody in the government would have found that out, that would have been page one news. Mm. When you say you're biased, are you saying you're biased because um, you would know that through the CIA or you're biased because you're a supporter of Trump or what? What? where, where does the bias bit come in? Yeah, I, I'm biased against conspiracy theories because, well, number one, having tried to create conspiracies, I know they're very hard. And number two, they are very hard to keep secret. And there are a lot of people who would have benefited from making that public. So uh, we would have heard that. We, we certainly would have heard it during Trump's presidency if, uh, if it were true. What are your thoughts on Jeffrey Epstein? Did he commit suicide? Because there's a lot of conspiracies again, rich and powerful got to him. You know, I, that is just a strange case. So yeah, exactly. So you're just, I just told you I'm biased against conspiracies, but that's actually one where <laughs> you look at the facts and you're, and you're like, hang on a second. Something's going on here that we don't have the full story for. And I don't know what the answer is. I mean, you look at, it, it was like everybody was connected to Epstein. You had Trump's health and human services secretary was the prosecutor down there in Florida who let him off. And then you've got all these Democrats on the other side who are connected to him. And it just seemed like that guy had such a reach that if anybody could pull off a conspiracy, it would be that guy or whoever was behind him. Yeah. It's, it's a crazy one, isn't it? Another conspiracy. Um, this one involving the CIA is, the Kennedy assassination. Have you ever had any thoughts on that, on, on whether the CIA were involved in that? I really have no idea about that one. I, I haven't gone down the rabbit hole right. on, you know, all the back and forth on, on what's the most likely case. Maybe, yeah, you should have me back on. We'll just do conspiracy theories all day. Should we? Should we do that? <laughs> um, all right, well, John, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate your time, man. Yeah, my pleasure, Andy. And if you want to know more about John, check out his book, A Spy's Guide to Thinking and Strategy and Risk. And if you like this interview, the best thing you can do to help me out is leave a review, but also share it with your mates. And we'll be back again next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.